0: us start with Professor Jairi Bokshi, uh, who is going to talk about messianism and technology. Welcome all in welcoming all of you. And uh, thank you to Hari Kiran for organizing this. Thank you to my fellow panelists. I'm very happy and proud to be a part of this. Um, the specific topic I've been asked to speak on today is messianism and technology. And because this is a non-specialist audience, I'm going to actually do it as a series of slides to keep you entertained and engaged and keep it all um, lively and relevant for you. The specific abstract that I will be speaking about if uh, you haven't all read the abstract is as follows. The technological and framing of modernity requires a multi-pronged approach combining analyses of the root causes of anthropocentrism, technological thinking, and the rise of capitalism, along with careful attention to non-Western, non-Christian traditions that did not take the turn to a technological understanding of reality. So in a sense, this encompasses the entire panel. That's what my colleagues will also be speaking of. But in my presentation, I will specifically take up the analysis of technology by influential 20th century continental philosopher Martin Heidegger. And the questions I want to ask is, is his analysis useful for thinking about technology or is his apocalyptic vision of technology actually indicative of a specific tradition of European thinking? And this is specifically Christian messianic thinking. So I will show how his understanding and analysis of technology is located within that tradition and therefore is not as helpful as it might be if we're seeking to overcome some of the problems that within that tradition or that tradition has caused. So with those introductory words, um, I will move to the PowerPoint. I know many of you may, might be a little puzzled about the heavy philosophy and what is the relevance of Heidegger uh, to what we're discussing today, but don't worry. All of that will be clarified. I'll keep it very simple and straightforward. And if you have questions, we'll have a long question and answer session afterwards. So with that said, let me share my screen. Microsoft PowerPoint. All right, so we should be on screen share. Can someone nod if you see me? Yes, okay, wonderful. So this is the topic today, messianism and technology. And let me start with a very simple statement. Um, For those of you who are wondering what the relevance of Heidegger or European philosophy more generally is to today's panel, and to the question of Indic environmentalism. These are the three points. I won't read them out that I wish to emphasize. Um, We are in a globalized situation. That globalized situation happens to be asymmetric because it was the result of centuries of colonization and a largely one-way flow of ideas. And through that one-way flow, Um, Indigenous cultures either retreated to a great extent, so there may be small isolated communities that still live with their normative values and their specific worldview. But as we know, that is not true for large parts of the globe. Large parts of the globe did come into contact with European modernity, Western modernity, and absorbed or imbibed many of those ideas. So at best, they could be considered hybrid cultures. Now, the political decolonization did begin. It has happened to a great extent, but it is not so easy to get rid of the intellectual legacy of colonization or the intellectual legacy of a certain way of thinking, philosophical thinking that through colonial education, through specific constitutions written to reflect those values, are still normative today for these other cultures. So that is the relevance of why we study European philosophy and why Vishwa and I have taken up this challenge of interrogating modernity from a position, a locus outside of it, which would be a more traditional indigenous perspective. And that locus gives us a way to ask critical questions of modernity. So it becomes an enriching dialogue Um, to really understand something, you do need that perspective outside of it. Let me go to the next slide. This is what I said in the first slide, but I thought a visual might help, you know, um, give you a kind of graphic sense of how widespread the European domination of of the globe was. As you can see, there are only about four or five countries that were never under European control, Thailand being one of them, Korea and Japan, but of course this this is itself not true. I mean, this is this is uh, politically true, but Japan, of course, modernized um, and and absorbed Western culture and was in fact one of the first Asian countries to do so. South Korea today is a highly technologized and industrialized country. So even this map is sort of not portraying the entire picture. Of what happens to the globe after the nineteenth century? Now we come to the philosopher I want to talk about. This is Martin Heidegger born 1889 in Meskisch in Germany. Um, To many of you, he will be a new figure, but don't worry, you don't need to know anything about him. You don't need to be quizzed on this. All you need to know is that he was a very influential 20th century philosopher, and his way of thinking about technology sort of sets the paradigm for contemporary philosophy. And his analysis of technology therefore needs to be interrogated if we're going to have a response an indigenous counter response to a specific way of looking at the problem of modernity and technology. On the right side, you see some of his biographic details and um, I won't read it out again, but it's important to emphasize how closely and deeply he, he is embedded in a rather provincial parochial world of Catholic Christianity. Uh, Meskesh is often considered a bastion of Catholicism in Germany, and he converts later to Protestantism, but the Christian elements continue throughout his work. And in fact, the last quote that you can see, he says, I am not a philosopher, but a Christian theologian. So we will be interrogating his understanding of technology to see if those elements survive there. Okay, now let me continue, next slide. I promised this would not be difficult and technical, so I've introduced a lot of videos, a lot of pictures, and beyond this little introduction, which was sort of text heavy, it's all going to be fairly light. But this is the first video we come to, and I'm going to play the whole thing, so you get an introduction to two of his main concerns. Have behaupten, Martin Heidegger? sei so konzentriert mit der Frage nach dem Sein beschäftigt, dass er die Conditio Humana, das Sein des Menschen, in Gesellschaft und als Person drangegeben habe?
1: Ja, die schlägste Kritik ist ein großes Missverständnis. Denn die Seinsfrage und die Entfaltung dieser Frage setzt ja gerade eine Interpretation des Staates voraus. Das heißt, das Wesen ist das Mensch. Und der Grundgericht in meiner ist ja gerade der, dass das Sein, bzw. die Offenbarkeit des Seins, den Menschen braucht, und das umgekehrt, der Mensch, der Mensch ist, in der Fähigkeit der Offenbarkeit des Seins steht. Damit trifft die Frage, wie weit ich will,
0: Okay, I have stopped sharing and I'm back with all of you because um, I know it becomes a little tiring for you to look at slide after slide in a kind of flat perspective. So I'm back here to interpret that first bit that we heard. Heidegger is arguing that we cannot look at being or what reality is without implicating the human in a certain way. So the centrality of the human to what is and that the human is somehow a core part of this plan for reality, that being, being in Heidegger is another way of saying God. God has a specific plan. Man has a specific role in that plan. And his philosophy is going to consistently emphasize that anthropocentricity. Now, in the original scheme of this panel, Edward and Vishwa were before me to discuss the problems of anthropocentricity, but you'll be hearing about it in a bit. But the problem with Heidegger, as I see it, is that once again, that emphasis on man as somehow being central to the divine plan. And man being the architect, man being the Lord, man being the one commanded to take care of reality in a specific way where reality is at the disposal of man becomes a very problematic legacy of modernity. You have heard from Viva and Rahul, and I was here and following along in their presentations, a completely different way of looking at reality where there is a kind of subservience to the natural, to the animal, And man is somehow living in a coexistence with them, but has to subordinate himself and his desires to that other. This is what gets lost in the specific framing of uh, the relation of man to being that, that Heidegger in continuation with the tradition does. That's the first point from that video. Let's go back to the video and I'll show you a second point that he makes.
1: Sprechen dass das Größer als die Ge- die zweitens davon sprechen das Größer als die Gefahr
2: der Atombombe für die heutige Menschheit das Gesetz der Technik ist
1: das Gestell wie Sie den Grundzug der Technik nennen das wirkliche in der Weise des Bestellens als
2: Bestand zu entbergen oder anders ausgedrückt alles und jedes
1: auf einen Knopfdruck ihn abrufbar zu machen? Zunächst ist zu sagen, dass ich nicht gegen die Technik bin. Ich habe nicht gegen die Technik gesprochen, und nicht über das sogenannte Gehörige der Technik, sondern ich versuche das Wesen der Technik zu verstehen. Und wenn Sie diese Gedanken zitieren mit der Gefährlichkeit der Atomwende und eine noch größere Gefährlichkeit der Technik, so denke ich, an das, was sich heute als Biophysik entwickelt, dass wir in absehbarer Zeit im Standort sind, den Menschen so zu machen, das heißt so ein organischen Wesen, so zu konstruieren, wie man auch geschickte, geschickte, gescheitert, Dumme.
0: Okay, let me come back again. And uh, I know it's a little tedious to hear German if it's a language you don't know, although there are subtitles, but I really wanted to give you a sense of the man and put kind of a personality and a face to this name that we are using. Um, Again, like his analysis of being or the relationship of man to being, technology also is being framed in a specific perspective. Heidegger is saying he's not against technology, but he's trying to understand the essence of technology. So already you see a certain step back from interrogating technology as either good or bad or evil. Um, Heidegger will not make a decision on that. That already becomes a problem in his analysis of technology because there are global Crisis and a catastrophe that we face, and a philosophy that won't take a stance on technology is actually less valuable to us today than the people who actually say that, you know, these are the problems, people who say we have to restrict technology. That brings us to a central question. Why, when the negative effects of technology are so obvious, is Heidegger refraining from taking a stance on it and saying, "This is the problem with technology? He says, I'm interested in the essence of technology. What is this essence? This essence will be a specific historical narrative that he is composing using technology, a kind of arch of humanity or an arc of humanity that is going to subsume all other cultures, the Greek predecessors of Western modernity, but also indigenous cultures within a specific understanding, a total global understanding. And that understanding is going to reveal something about a certain group of people. So it is again, a kind of secularized version of a meta-narrative that subsumes all cultures and gives them a final goal, a final salvation, if you will. And that becomes very problematic in his understanding of technology. So those are the points that I want to interrogate here. Um, we'll go back to a few slides and see where this tradition of thinking is coming from and again, they're going to be very light and easy slides, so um, you know it, it should not be too difficult to to think through. <clears throat> the privileged example Heidegger uses is a hydroelectric power project, and that is of course something um, We all immediately relate to, you all know about the Narmada Dam in India, various other agitations, the Dairy Dam and so on. And you know the enormous catastrophe that these hydroelectric power projects have wrought for the people living in their vicinity, whose lands were submerged and who were displaced. Heidegger is right to notice the dangerous aspect of these projects, but he is not so much interested in that sort of pragmatic aspect, as we might call it as he is in saying that the dam itself reveals something about reality. And he's right there. It reveals that our desires for energy, for electricity, for control over nature, for increased productivity, all these things have gotten out of hand and all of them need to be interrogated. But Heidegger says, that's not the point. We don't have to take a stance at that level We have to just see that it is revealing a certain way of nature that itself is going to reveal something else, a higher plan or a higher reality. And hence, technology becomes valuable, not in its intrinsic ability to, for example, for medicine to cure people. It becomes valuable as a way of showing that higher plan, that providential plan that uh, being has for us. How relevant is this discussion to the rest of the world? Through this specific understanding of being as available to man, which Heidegger is correct in in denoting um, or, or in identifying, that understanding, in fact, becomes normative for the rest of the world through two specific papal bulls: one granted to Portugal and one granted to Spain, which encodes that understanding of availability, that all of reality, material reality, land, territory, islands, plants, animals, and even human beings as slaves, they are all available to man and at his disposal. This is actually legally encoded into the structure of modernity through two papal bulls. And I'm i am not going to read the whole papal bull, but I just wanted to show you the relevance of that specific understanding of the relationship of man to reality, it's not an abstract phenomenon. We philosophers are not dealing with, you know, ideas that have no consequence for reality. They actually affect the way our world has uh, unfolded over the last several centuries. So this is the first papal bull, and this is the second one. And from the second one, I just want to show that um, the Pope grants um, Spain and Portugal the right over the new world. And he includes everything in, that is found in those territories. So they have dominion over cities, camps, places, villages, rights and jurisdictions of, of all those territories and the people found there. And the final line that is in bold And we make, appoint, and depute you and your said heirs and successors, lords of them with full and free power, authority and jurisdiction of every kind. This stated lordship, dominion over reality is the philosophical problem that we are trying to address today. Now, I'm going to come to another video. I'm going to show you just this video and then a few other slides. The tradition of thinking that is being expressed here is something called messianic apocalyptic thinking. It is a tradition in which the suffering of history is part of an intrinsic plan. And it is necessary in order to reveal the final end of this plan. And because that's an abstract concept to convey, I simply have a video that's going to show you that. So it becomes easier for you to absorb that notion.
2: The last and boldest statement of Northern religious art can be found in the Isenheim altarpiece, the work of a German master. This massive altar in three stages is by the artist we know as Matthias Grunewald. In many ways, it is the ultimate painting in Christian art. Never again, would a painter feel quite so free to express the mysteries of Christian faith ranging from agony to ecstasy. This altarpiece was painted around 1515 for an Antonite monastery which specialized in the care of skin diseases. The crucifixion is shown with unprecedented impact in horrific immediacy like a monstrous affliction, the last word in Teutonic torture. Mary swoons in the arms of St. John the Evangelist as the kneeling Magdalene twists her hands in grief. In the wings, two healing saints,
1: Sebastian and Antony, stand like living statues.
0: Okay. Um, I hope you enjoyed that kind of dramatic interlude. Um, Why did I include that video in the presentation? The papal bulls that we saw just prior to that video lead to enormous suffering. I I don't need to show you pictures, you can Google pictures of colonization, enslavement, the torture of individuals, um, the, the destruction of entire civilizations. What is the connection between that and the video you saw of this painting? there is in this messianic thinking a tendency to emphasize that horror of history but not negate it because that horror is needed as revealing some higher truth so it becomes integrated within a plan and hegel the philosopher hegel will actually say all these wars destructions etc what is their meaning and he speaks of the slaughter bank of history all the civilizations that are killed on the slaughter bank of history What is the meaning then of that action? And of course the action will be that all of that was necessary to legitimate, to justify and to posit as the final end, a certain civilization, a certain revelation, a certain um, historical religion that he equates of course, with his own present that will be German Protestant Christianity. But you see how the problem of suffering the problem of colonization cannot be posed in the proper intellectual perspective until this eschatological framework that justifies what has happened says it is A, providential, B, meaningful, C, necessary, and ultimately even beneficial or salvific. So D, beneficial and salvific, takes all that suffering, subsumes it into a history, and in a sense negates the reality of those who had to suffer. So it's an extremely parochial way of looking at history but it has become influential if you think about the problem with large dams in India if you read some of the debates are these not the very terms in which the argument is framed it's for the greater good right it's old civilizations are old ways of living they have to give way to modernity so it's a justification of the present the greed or the need of the present and what comes before can be sacrificed or other people can be sacrificed in order to legitimate that one present moment. That is sort of the philosophical structure within which Heidegger's thinking of technology is placed. It does not actually raise any of the problems with technology It does not raise the problems with destruction or colonization, but follows this legitimation structure. So I'm going to move a little faster now, because that is sort of the essence of my presentation. Um, I have a few more slides, but I'll skip some of them. So we keep enough time for discussion. Let me go back and do just a few more with you. So these are details of the altarpiece that you saw in the video. If if there are questions about it, I will come back to it, but we don't need to get into more, more detail of it right now. Um, the point that the, the final few points I want to make is in this history that we are being told, the unavailability of the divine, the retreat of the divine that is emblematic here as, as the crucified Christ when he is taken down from the cross. This notion of a God that has withdrawn himself and left humans to enact this salvation drama is one of the problems that we will face. Ed Butler's paper, which really I'd hoped would precede mine, is going to show you the problem with extracting divinity from nature and saying that God has withdrawn and has left you in this material, cold, historical and painful world to enact a specific kind of salvation drama. um, That is also one of the problems we are dealing with. And it is again, a problem that repeatedly recurs in Heidegger's thinking because he is very much a Protestant Christian and he constantly emphasizes this notion of the absent God. Uh, I will skip this. This is actually the textual passage in Luther uh, pointing back to Paul, Corinthians uh, 1, 2, 7, where the notion of the absence of God vis-a-vis the pagans is articulated. And this is what the um, absence of God or the death of God looks like. How do we understand, let me now wrap it all up and bring it together. How do we understand Heidegger's philosophical project in the essay on technology? This is the dead God or the God who has withdrawn, the absent God. In The 19th century, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche comes up and actually articulates this problem with the death of God. And he puts a kind of end to a specific way of thinking about humans and reality and being where the kind of drama I have laid out for you is enacted and says, no, this God is dead, and we have now killed him. So he puts an end to that tradition of thinking. This is the passage that that Nietzsche has in the gay science. The madman. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning, hours in the marketplace, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God as many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Etc. Etc. So Nietzsche is pointing to a place we have reached in Western modernity where a specific concept of God now has come to an end. And as the next part will say, we have killed him. All of us are his murderers. How did we do that? How could we drink up the sea? So even that specific sense of ethical limitation that the Judeo-Christian God was providing up to a certain point has now vanished. And we are in a post-death of God situation where for the sake of human hubris, for the sake of human desire, we have sacrificed even that residual concept. So first there was the God in his sort of magnificence, that would be the Yahweh of the Jews. Then there is the God who is poor and indigent, that is Christ on the cross. Then there is the absent God of Protestantism. And finally, we come to a situation where God is completely removed from the scene and human hubris, human desire becomes the only sort of authoritative instance. It becomes the normative um, structure of reality. Heidegger's project here in the technology essay is to kind of restore a salvific God post this death of God. And he does that by interpreting technology in a way that it itself becomes the salvific history. It itself becomes the final stage of humanity where the distinction between some who are saved and some who are damned is again re-encoded. And that distinction is the problem to begin with. You saw in the papal bulls, this distinction is made between those who have dominion over others and those who are simply at the level of animals and will will be enslaved and will be exploited. And in a sense, the technology essay that Heidegger publishes um, 1852, I think is the date, uh, sorry, 1952, a century off, re-encodes that structure into our thought. Um, This is in a sense, the whole, Salvation drama that is um, now, now being restored. So let me see if I can go to a pointer mode and explain this to you, laser pointer. Okay, the story will begin up here with a kind of fall. In technology, man turns away to the things of his making. For him, being is being produced. So we are now at this level, fallen away from realizing the power of God and only turn to the material. What is required according to Heidegger is that we return back to being, we return to that scene, but that scene notice the absence here. It is not a God of presence, but a God of absence. And we sort of remain within that absence without trying to fill this void up with content. So indirectly through the dead materiality we see here, The dead materiality serves as a reminder of God. This is the essence of Heidegger's messianic thinking on technology. The reason I've put a a Christian image behind the the structure of his essay is to show how that Christian structure of thinking remains within Heidegger's thought. So the technology essay continues within a tradition of messianic thinking. It continues within a tradition of Um, Let me just stop this and come back so I can speak to you directly. It remains within a tradition of, um, here I am, it remains within a tradition of messianic thinking where whatever happens in history, all the damage, all the violence and so on is still somehow redeemed at the end. It is in fact necessary for that end to happen. So it becomes justified and legitimate. Colonization, death of indigenous civilizations, you know, slavery on a mass scale, all of that gets legitimated for the end. This is problem one. Problem two, all the environmental destruction, all the the things that we are doing to the planet are not seen as problematic. In fact, Heidegger explicitly in the video you said, he says, I'm not taking a stance on it. I'm not saying that's demonic. I'm saying it's part of a plan. I'm saying it's necessary to reveal something about being. And that becomes another legacy of his Christian heritage. So that's my entire presentation. I want to stop on one final slide which sums up the talk for you. And then I'll hand it over to someone else um, uh, who, who wishes to take the thread up from me. So let me go back to share screen. here summarized for you by the way the image on the left is Saint Apollonia um, climbing up a ladder to destroy a pagan statue there's a wonderful book by Catherine Nixie called The Darkening Age I really recommend it's not an academic book it's very simple very lucid very easy to read I recommend all of you get a hold of a copy and read it to understand how sort of impactful this destruction of antiquity was um, that that ed will speak about next and these are the points on the right so that was the image on the right what heidegger does is he creates a single encompassing narrative from the greeks to the present pagan philosophy becomes the problem it is not the solution it is not the counter to modernity but it is actually the problem responsible for modernity so because this is not a philosophical audience I didn't get into the technical aspects that are in my paper on on Heidegger and Aristotle, but that is sort of the the place that Heidegger locates the blame. He himself will say this narrative as a hidden meaning. That's the third point. He will not take a stance on human responsibility and the human share in this history. Um, He will, in fact, say it's it's a divinely foreordained history and we are simply, you know, obedient participants in it, hearing the call of God or of providence and acting in a certain way. We who have an insight into this plan, into this hidden meaning, we will be saved. So the destruction will come about. The apocalyptic outcome of technology is not to be delayed. It is not to be held back. It is in fact to be forced and advanced, according to Heidegger, in order to make this apocalyptic separation between the saved and the damned. So these are all the ways in which Heidegger's discussion of technology encodes a certain Christian understanding of reality and of salvation. And for those reasons, um, an engagement with with Heidegger is important if we're going to think about the philosophical roots of modernity and think about the way these narratives keep recurring in a semi-secularized form and inform the choices available to us today. So that's my presentation
1: for today.